This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Hi, everybody. Um, for those watching online, I'm sorry I disappeared for a week. I tried to record a few things. Um, but we're back, and all of this can be seen on... Um, uh, this particular class will be on Torah Anytime as well, and it will be on uh, Sure Enjoyment, which uh, all my classes are ripped off of Facebook and put onto Sure Enjoyment legally. And... Uh, Sorry to use the word ripped off. And um, Shur Enjoyment's S-H-U-I-R. Sorry, I-U. Shur Enjoyment. And uh, Torah Anytime, which is the easiest to remember. I have many titles on there, as well as thousands of lectures from people from all over the world. I I didn't come with a subject, which is my norm for this class. but I'm open to anything if you guys would like. Uh, if you'd like me to handle a particular subject, I'll, I'll handle that subject today. Otherwise, uh, I'm sure I'll come up with something, <laughs> knowing me. So does someone have a, a particular topic they're interested in today? I am interested in, in the relationship of money with the relation with God. Man's relationship with God? With money. 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 Oh, money, money, money and God. Okay, that's a fascinating one, yeah. The renewal, we're coming out of Tuba Shabbat Spring, going into Pesach. Oh, my God. I got a good one. Can't skip part. Yeah. How do you get the maximum pleasure out of Judaism? How <laughs> <laughs> do you look like the perfect <laughs> I'm good at that one. Um, and you know what, I'm just going to write down a few of these. So we had money and Judaism. And we got max pleasure out of Judaism. Judaism, and then um, and then we had uh, yours was uh, yeah uh, spring yeah what do you got personal purpose in the world meaning individual purpose yeah uh, personal purpose. Okay, and then in the back we had one more. Settling differences through the eyes of Torah or through Torah. Like different okay, okay. Uh, we had conflict uh, resolution through co- Torah. Conflict resolution. And uh, yeah, last one. What is the Orthodox fear doing so wrong that all these FFBs are sitting in Asia Torah right now? <laughs> uh. uh What's wrong? <laughs> what's wrong? What's wrong with the observant community? We don't have enough time for that one class. What's wrong? I'm saying if we're going to fix the problem. We have to come up with. We have to realize what the problem. Whose purse is that, by the way? Uh, there's plenty of room, ladies. Uh, w, you want to give up that chair? Come over to here. There's a table for two. We're just getting started. Okay. Um, none of those topics are that exciting to me, but they. Um, anyone else got a topic? Yeah. Uh, how do you keep the inspiration every day, day to day? You? You're not going to sit behind me, are you? Please don't do that. Just sit next to Moishi. You know each other, Moishi and Devin? You know Yaakov Zev? You met? No. Yaakov Zev. As we know. <laughs> Forever. (laughs) 
There were certain people who were at my Tuba Shvat Seder till 7 in the morning. So uh, whoever was there till 7 will never forget each other. <laughs> we'll all be each other's best men at the weddings. <laughs> and we ended the night stark naked in a mikvah, the whole, the whole group. <laughs> Only to have my neighbors like come in and see we're having a full jacuzzi party. <laughs> we were in there for about a half hour that one pool, you know. Brother, you have a big house. Right next door. Right next door. Yeah. At seven a.m., the meal ended, and we danced around a, a willow tree, and then stri- straight to the mikvah. We, we all went to the mikvah. But wow! Hey, how was your lunch? It was right. The food was incredible. Okay. Um, here we go. <laughs> here we go. Like, what are we going with here? So, you know what? Maybe I'll handle a little of each because I'm a little bit jet lagged. So, that way I don't have to have a brain. So, we'll handle one of each. Okay, we'll start with uh, money and Judaism. Alejandro from Argentina? Leandro. From Leandro. Leandro. Um, tell me, uh, it begins with an L, your name? Leandro? Oh, Leandro. Leandro, um, what is the nature of your question about money and Judaism? Um, it's very selfish, the, the question. I want a lot of money, and I want to see how the Torah can help me to get it. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I can hide the question. No, you did good. <laughs> now, uh, he wants a lot of money, and he wants to know... You're not producing very well. I mean, this guy's classic, unique-looking guy. You could have filmed him. It's not too late, by the way. Um, just unclip it. <laughs> Say hi, Elian. He's not on there. <laughs> Next time, unclip. <laughs> yeah. So, um, it's an excellent question. <laughs> How can Judaism make you more money? <laughs> Are you born Jewish? Yes. Yeah. So, so... So let me share with you a couple of things on how to get more money. Number one is uh, is uh, being part of the observant community of Judaism, uh, specifically the observant ones, are incredible networkers. Uh, they consider helping get you an amazing job to be um, to not need any return. Meaning, the fi- most people think favors require return. But in the observant community, getting someone an amazing job and really going out of your way to get them that amazing job. I just landed someone here in Israel last, uh, two weeks ago I landed someone, uh, he's getting paid $2,000 a month, which is, you know, not much for an American salary, but it's uh, pretty nice for a guy living in Jerusalem. And uh, I just nailed that, boom, like for this guy. No questions asked. I don't need a favor. You know, he doesn't have to send me anything. We, we... We don't consider getting someone a job a favor that needs returning. It doesn't need any returning. That's just basic. You helped another family. We also take pride in, in employees. We love having Torah homes uh, being supported by our companies. So we, we may be a little bit nepotistic in that we like to employ Torah-observant Jews because that means there's going to be Shabbos tables coming off your company's money. There's going to be kosher food. There's going to be kids who are, who are making, who are, their private Jewish schooling is going to be paid for by the company that the wife or the husband are working for. And so what it does is it takes your whole company to a new level of sanctity. I mean, you may be selling nothing more than, uh, you know, like, you know, you'd be selling like tire pumps or something. It doesn't matter what you're selling. 
but the company's actually is actually because the company's fueling Jewish homes. So so it's uh, it's a pleasure to employ people, and it's uh, and it's also the whole company takes on its own blessing. Um, another another thing about actually making the money via the Torah is that, and then I'm going to say something very deep, Leandro, and that is that the more you give yourself over to God, and your and the more you identify yourself as a soul, which is the whole point of Judaism is that you identify yourself with a soul and that you focus your mental energy on God. That's what we're here to do. Identify as a soul and have your mental energy be God-focused as opposed to the thousands of random thoughts you get an hour that have absolutely nothing to do with that. Um, we we want to use... How's it going, ladies? Uh, we got a table for two over here. Yakov, do you mind joining over? Just sliding over. Something's on the floor in there. Do you have any more water in the room from Ace Water? Yeah, no one lip that? Just throw it. I, just throw it. Fire water. That's what the Indians called whiskey when the Europeans turned the Native Americans onto whiskey. They called the whiskey fire water because it really messed them up. The Indians were not good with whiskey. Um, they, Indians were good with tobacco, which they never inhaled. And then the uh, they didn't, it, tobacco was a sacrament. It's a sacramental, uh, sacred plant for native country, native tribes. Whereas uh, the Westerners just inhaled the stuff. And you see, like like everything they did to the Indians, including killing ninety percent of them, just with European diseases that they brought with them. In the end, many more Europeans were killed by the tobacco that never ever killed an Indian. That was not my water. Okay, great. It had a funky taste. What made you think that was my water? You brought the cup with me. You saw me with that cup? Okay, then it was my water. Then this is funky. Okay, something's funky. Now, um, making money. Um, when you get your consciousness tuned in to your neshama, meaning or really tuned out of the brain and into consciousness, and and you get yourself tuned into God, things just start to flow. Things just flow for you, and what happens is you you become your your power to attract into your life the things you want is is upped by tenfold. I mean, anyway, you're attracting what you want, even the stuff you don't want. Anyway, you attract into your life the stuff coming your way. But when you get yourself really cleaned out, like, thank you so much. Uh, any other, more cups there? Oh, there's cups. Right there. uh, just two cups. When your vibrational energy is clean, which is the whole point of Judaism, then the... Um, so then, it causes you to have amazing interactions with people. And one of those things you can create is what's called abundance mentality. And that abundance mentality vibrationally pulls a wealthier way. And it doesn't matter where you are or what you're doing. The abundance mentality just simply creates wealth. So, you're getting all this? Each, of, each world. Great. So, 
Um, and then just the obvious stuff is that once you're clean, meaning once you, your ego's cleaned out by uh, the proper use of Judaism, once you get your ego cleaned out, so then you're no you're your, your fears of taking the risk to get the money because the only way to really make money is you have to take some risks and the risks suddenly don't feel like such big risks because usually people think the downside of financial risk is losing your money it's not the downside of losing money of taking financial risk is not losing the money it's losing your reputation so but if you have your ego cleaned out so there's no reputation issues Losing your money is irrelevant to you. And now you're much less risk-phobic. And now you can make those risks, take the risks to make the money. Now, what's going to keep you from losing the money in those risks? And the answer is that you will always, whenever you're involved in those decisions, the financial decisions of the risk, you will always do so with tremendous advice. Now, guess what? Not only do we network, we give advice unsolicited just kidding we give advice um, you can literally I can get you meetings with some of the wealthiest Jews on the planet who will with pleasure sit with you and make sure you don't do something really stupid <laughs> and they'll take whatever your strategies, strategy is I can take you you can have the best strategy in the world but in the end it's going to totally flop I can take you to people and they'll be happy to sit with you and they will they will um They'll just show you, like, you're, what, that is going to totally fail. And it's, it's, ter- it's okay short-term, it's horrific long-term, and you'll lose all your money. So, so these people will advise you. In the observant community, advice is something that's also considered our pleasure, and it does not require any favors returned after you get it. Um, but that's one thing that will save you from the risk factor. Another thing that saves you from the risk factor is... Uh, what I already spoke about was, and that was having a clean vibrational energy. Because clean vibrational energy is going to give you only honest people to deal with. You're not going to attract in, uh, a, a scoundrel into your life. One of the fears of doing business is you might wind up doing business with a scoundrel. And once you're in business with a scoundrel, you're in trouble. So there's no way you're going to be involved with a scoundrel if you have clean energy, because you wouldn't attract a scoundrel into your life. You would only contract, only attract uh, someone who's who's got clean energy like yours, and so that would also be very important. I'd like to go on with this, but I'm not going to. We can speak privately about awesome. more ways to make money via Torah. Okay, um, but there's also books on money and Torah that might be worth checking out. Okay, and then just since I told you some ways how to make a lot of money doing Torah, I'm going to give you the warning that it can also take you far, far, far away from anything good and real. Um, Money tends to co- cause more complexity in life. Um, you'll notice that you could have the most spiritual yeshiva boy at the mirror who's like learning and he's davening and he's a very spiritual guy. But he's planning like so many people to move against, move eventually uh, to uh, the U.S. and to start his life and to build a business and stuff. When you tap in with that guy sometimes 10, 15 years later, he does not have a spiritual bone left in his body. So this guy went from being a spiritual person to being someone who, like, who like, forget spiritual. He he's ignoring his wife and kids, you know. And his wife's ready to leave him, and she's looking at the money now, and she's just going like, half of that's mine. So I don't know why I'm even hanging around Bozo in the first place, because whoever I marry, this is not. 
and and he's messing up the kids because the kids, you know, are all being trained by Torah educators, and the father's like totally out to lunch spiritually. And so, so you got to be careful. Now, this isn't a warning not to go make the money. Go make the money. There's nothing wrong with it, but do it right. Do it right. There, there are things that are just not worth sacrificing, and those, and the two biggest things not worth sacrificing is your family and your spirituality. They're not, they're not for sale. They're not for sale. This whole lifetime, from the day you were born to the day you die, there will be zero time elapsed. Time is part of the creation. When your soul gets back to reality, meaning after your life, you'll find out that none of this actually even took place. The only thing that took place was whatever mitzvahs you did. And so, so to have money rip you away from what you came here for in a place that doesn't even have time, there's no time elapse in your life. There is zero time. I don't care if you live 100 years. 100 years is part of a creation called time. And when you go to the world that's beyond creation, you'll be in reality. And in reality, you'll just find out that you blew it. So, anyway, that's the warning. The warning is you can make a lot of money with Torah, but you can also, uh, you can also once you make the money, you can get yourself in such a web of, of attachments and, and uh, having a very complicated life. And then, and then of course, priorities shift. And there's, um, there's a lot of emergencies, so you find yourself constantly staving off emergencies and stuff and, and not, um, staying focused on your values. Sure. Um, if you want to get the door, there's a couple of people out there. No, they left, they left. Yeah. Um, what about, um, giving a tith on fruit? The Torah says. Giving a what? Giving a tithe. A tithe on fruit. On fruit? Yeah, what yeah. about? So the Torah says you could test God, see if they'll give you back the money. Yeah, you're apparently allowed to test God with 20% income. Uh, that's another hint. You're allowed to give away 20% of your profits. Yeah. And and apparently you like can double your money. So if you give away for charity, but you got to learn all the laws of charity. But if you do the charity right, 20% um, comes off and goes to charity. You're, that's the one thing you're allowed to test God with. Because he apparently will double your money. The international president of Torah tried this. He was a secular Jew who um, was going bankrupt, and, the, and he had asked someone for advice, and they said, well, why don't you speak to Rav Noah Weinberg? And he spoke to Rav Noah, and Rav Noah told him to give away 20% of your money, which was very convenient for Asia Tour at the time. And, <laughs> and he was like, what money? I'm going bankrupt. Can someone please remind me not to leave my sweater here? He said, what money? I'm going bankrupt. He said... Any money that comes in, you promise you're giving for charity, and you'll double and triple and quarter. Anyway, he became a multimillionaire. Yeah. Now, um, uh, the next question was getting max pleasure out of Judaism. Um, the way to get max pleasure out of Judaism is is to treat Judaism as a spiritual discipline. If any of you flew to India, you would be expecting, you know, let's say you went to India to become enlightened or become spiritual, whatever it is you were going for, I don't think there's a person in this room who would think you could treat, you know, Buddhism or Hinduism the way you treat your Judaism. We treat Judaism like an old undershirt. We don't treat it with discipline. And so if we're not disciplined spiritually, if we let, for example, just blessings, 
if you let blessings be what's in the way of your food, as opposed to the point of the food, is it a blessing? So what happens is your whole entire Judaism becomes ultimately a burden, and it's not a pleasure. But if you treat Judaism as a spiritual discipline, it is the currency of your neshama, the currency of your soul in this world, and you really treat it with discipline, you will get tremendous pleasure out of it. You will have, like, you will be high on Judaism, drunk on Judaism. As they say, there's a mitzvah on Purim. That's our next holiday, to get drunk on Purim. Yeah, there's a mitzvah to get drunk on Purim. Everyone knows about that mitzvah? Yep. Yeah, you're supposed to get drunk, though, also on Pesach, and to get drunk on Shavuos, and to get drunk on Torah, and to get drunk on Tefillah, and to get drunk on... Meaning the mitzvah is not to get drunk on wine. The mitzvah is to get drunk on Purim. So you want the max pleasure. Who asked about max pleasure? You asked about max pleasure. You want max pleasure, get discipline. Get discipline. And... Uh, Start treating Judaism. Find a Rebbe and treat him the way... Treat him, treat him one-tenth as much as a person who moved to India treated his guru. Treat him one-tenth. Find a Rebbe. And when I say a Rebbe, I do not mean a copycat of some previous Rebbe from some other generation. I'm talking about, like, find yourself a real Rebbe. And I have a class on YouTube called Finding a Rav. It's a one-hour class on all the details it takes to find yourself a teacher who's a real mentor, real Rebbe. So find yourself a Rebbe and treat, give him one-tenth of the honor that someone would give a guru in India. Just a tenth of that. I remember I had a guy come here from India after 12 years under his teacher, and he finally decided like he had major questions that only Judaism could answer. So he went to his guru, he prostrated on all, on his face, he prostrated flat on the ground on his face to ask permission of his teacher to come to Israel and learn. And uh, you know what his teacher said? Come back in a year. <laughs> he lived there, meaning come back and ask this in a year. And he said, come back in a year. He came back. That was the eleventh year. He came back the, after the twelfth year, prostrated himself flat on his face in front of his rabbi in front of his teacher, Lahabdil Rebbe, and asked him to come to Israel to learn the Torah. And he got permission. He showed up in this classroom, shaved head, wearing a bed sheet. <laughs> we had some amazing conversation. It was really something special. Sounds like your type of guy, right? Yes. Um, anyway, but that'll get you max pleasure, too, because uh, you, you need someone to guide you. And that person, by the way, his lifestyle is not yours. Let him have his own lifestyle. You have your lifestyle, but he will he will guide you. Okay. Um, next is spring. All I can say after Tubishvat is um, is that we're we're now on our way to Purim, and so which is also the culmination of the year, the twelfth month of the year, and uh, we're now in this new moon cycle. New moon was Tubishvat. New moon's Purim. New moon's Pesach. And we're, we're heading in for, uh, you know, this very special time of year, which will include the four Parshas, which are Parshas Para, 
Zachar, Chodesh, and Shabbos Agadol. Okay? Those are coming uh, our way. And uh, it's just part of the Jewish years of our wash cycle. And we're in the second portion, which is, uh, the first portion was Rosh Hashanah till Hanukkah, which is called um, protection. And now we're from Hanukkah till Pesach, is called potential, meaning you're guiding the potential. And then uh, Pesach through Tammuz is actualization. And then from Thomas through Elul is, is, um, no, it's a, it's a reflection. Culminating. It's first a national reflection of the, over the temple and our situation as a nation. And then it moves to personal reflection of Elul coming into Rosh Hashanah. So we're in that, we're midway through the second part, which is now potential. It's guiding our potential into Pesach. And staying tuned in to what you asked for in Rosh Hashanah, because now you're you're about to actualize. So you want to now be guiding that that those prayers of Rosh Hashanah. You want to guide them into actualization, which would be Pesach. Uh, next is personal purpose. The Torah, the Torah, sorry, world history mirrors personal purpose in that you look at you look at world history. It starts with creation, Genesis. You know, Bereshit creation. And then it has Revelation, which is Mount Sinai, halfway along, you know, 2,448 years after Adam. So it's about halfway through creation. And then you have uh, culmination, which will be the times of Mashiach. So you have creation, revelation, culmination. Well, look at your life. It's the same way. Your life's set up the same way. You're, you were born. You will die. And at some point, hopefully not the middle, but earlier than the middle, there will be revelation of what your life's for. What's, what is your personal purpose? What is your contribution as an individual? Now, to find your purpose as an individual is uh, it's a bit of a challenge because your ego's in the way. And the ego's two biggest fears are rejection and failure. Now, if you were to discover your purpose, if you discovered your special contribution on this planet, what's your job now? You've got to do it. Well, doing it, first of all, you have friends, family, co-acquaintances, and random people who are going to laugh. They're not going to take you seriously. That's going to hurt. And so the fear of rejection is definitely in the way of you knowing your special contribution. That's one. And two is failure. That it's going to, anything that succeeds has to go through a period of failure. Failure is the teacher of success. The way you get to success, there's another one for you, Leander. The, the, the failure is the teacher that leads to success. So there's many, there will be many failures along the way. Um, but for you to be someone who doesn't take those failures personally, but rather as teach, it's just w- failure gives you the wisdom to succeed. And to, to pursue that, to pursue your contribution, you have to be ego free. You'll notice that your fear of rejection and failure has shaped you more than any other thing in your life. <laughs> Meaning your teachers, your parents, your rebbies, like all of those people have not shaped you one bit as much as your fear of rejection and failure. <laughs> you know, they, they've, at best, they've tempered it a little bit. They've given you a little encouragement. You know, but, but your biggest teacher has been... Sorry, your biggest shaper... 
uh, the way I, the analogy I like is uh, if you see my daughter's icing cakes, they have these icing bags, and then they have a toolbox full of shapes. They can put the shape of the icing. Your fear of rejection, your fear of failure, as well as your fear of out of control or the fear of the unknown or the fear of uh, you know pain and suffering. Those five fears are basically the shape of your life. And all of them are not even real fears. They're, fear stands for false evidence appearing real. They're, and they're not even real, which is really scary because God is going to ask. Each one of us was born with a contribution and he's going to ask about it. God's going to ask. And if you think you get to point to the things you're afraid of, he'll be like, so you live your whole life directed by your mirage of fear? And then he'll show you what your life would look like had you not been afraid of all those things. All of those things are are ego-driven, all those five fears. Rejection, failure, being out of control, meaning not having everything buttoned up, and the fear of the unknown and the fear of pain and suffering are, are, um, are illusions. They're illusions. If you're wondering, by the way, why I just said your whole life was shaped by illusion, it's because those fears are also driven by another thing that I did not discuss. Um, those, those five fears are driven by, by negative beliefs about yourself. Can you go the five fears again? Sure. Rejection, failure, out of control, unknown, and the fear of pain and suffering. Thank you. Those five fears which have shaped your life are actually, they, them, they themselves are driven by a totally different thing, and that is your um, any negative self-perceptions. See, if I have a negative self-perception of being, uh, I don't know, uh, ugly or not unwanted or... You know, something like that. So my fear of rejection is going to be massive, and that will constantly shape my life because I will not do X, Y, and Z for fear of you may reject me. So you understand what's going on? So we have our lives being shaped by these fears. and But the, what's driving us to be afraid of those fears is an inner negative self-perception. Now, those negative perceptions you might want to say are true about you that you are dumb or you are ugly or you are not lovable or whatever. You'd like to say those are true and you know what you do to prove it to me? You tell me some story that happened that proves it. You know what I would tell you? I believe you that that story happened. I believe you that that story happened. I believe you that that story happened. But it also ended. But that vibrational energy got stuck in you, and we attract all, everything coming our way is attracted by vibrational energy. And once that, once that story locks in, that's what you attract into your life. And for that reason, I have committed myself for the last 15 years to train people in transforming their vibrational energy. Shalom, nice lady. Whose purse is that? Can someone move that purse? We have a seat right here for you. For that reason, I have dedicated the last 15 years of my life to helping people 
transform their vibrational energy. In fact, I just flew back from 84 new um, graduates of the Possible Youth Seminar, and uh, there are 84 people in New York who are right now flying after they finally put the past where it belongs. Where does the past belong? In the past. Everyone say in the past. In the past. There are 84 new people in one town called Muncie who are no longer having their past guide their future. The way they were living was, you know how we drive a car where we're sitting on the seat and we're looking forward and the rearview mirror shows you the past? You know where they were sitting? They were sitting on the dashboard driving forward, looking out the back window and letting all the things that ever happened to them be the the shapes on the end of the icing bag that life is squeezed through. And they finally took that stupid bag and threw it to the garbage. And are already, I'm getting, we finished Thursday. I've already gotten, uh, I'd say today was another 100. Motsi Shabbos was already 400. Uh, I would say I've, there's been already about 700 texts of victories they've had in their personal lives since Thursday. And during the seminar itself, there was already multi-thousands of dollars of, of um, successes that many people had in that were working on financial projects. Uh, meaning this, that, seminar, <laughs> that seminar has been paid for for almost every person who was there already. And the reason I'm, I would like to bring it up just now is because uh, I'm running one in the last one in Jerusalem for months, possibly. Um, it's going to be this Sunday. And there's an intro for men and women. Uh, this Thursday night for people who have no idea who I am and are, might be nervous to put their lives into my hands for six nights straight. Um, but for those who know me, you don't have to come Thursday, but you should sign up. It's, uh, these flyers are around town, and I brought little hand flyers, so please take, them, take one and pass. If you don't need it personally, just give it to, take one anyway and give it to someone who might need it. And Dovin, this is your last chance, by the way, so you better be there. I'm going to find you. Yeah. Is there a way that a person can figure out what their specific purpose is? Yeah, so, so I'm going to talk about that. To find your specific purpose, there are four steps to find your contribution. The first one requires all the intense work, and that's to get to self-nullification, meaning get rid of an ego. Remember, the ego's in the way of it because you don't, you don't even want to know your purpose because then you've got to do it. And if you've got to do it, it's scary because all the fears, the five fears. So the first thing is getting your ego out of the way, and that's the main work. Once your ego's out of the way, then what you do is you, step two is you examine what it is that's always bothered you about the world. You're going to be a lot better at contributing to the world from, from something that's always bothered you that you're here to fix. That you actually go to bed every night thinking about tomorrow's day of how will I fix this tomorrow in the world? What contribution can I give tomorrow in my life? So you're going to actually start waking up for it. In other words, You need to figure out what's always been your problem. I know most of you are trying to get rid of your problems, but I'm trying to give you one. (laughs) I want you to have one big problem that's worth living for, one big problem that's worth waking up for, one big problem that's worth not smoking for so that you live longer to contribute it for more years, one big problem that's worth eating healthy for so your immune system's strong so that you don't ever catch colds because we need you. (laughs) So you need one big problem. You want to know something? If you do have that big problem, 
I've had it myself. Like by having that one big problem, it causes all your little problems to pale in comparison, and you no longer are spending much time by the shrink dealing with your little problems because they just turn petty. Because you've got one big problem that's worth living for, and you wake up every day to solve it. So step one was getting rid of the ego, and that's a lot of work. That's the work we'll be doing next week um, in the seminar. And the second one is um, the second is the. Um, is, as I said, figure out your big problem. The third one is to examine your life and look at yourself really honestly for what are your special gifts. Each one of us has special applicable skills. Some of them you're born with. Like some people, they're just networkers. They're amazing at networking. I'm not like that at all. I, I'm not a networker. Meaning I can meet you in the morning and you say you're looking for an apartment in Nachlaut. And I can meet you in the afternoon and you're like, hey, I got an apartment in Nachlaut. And I'll be like, oh. Isn't that nice? I'd say that to both of you. And it would go right over my head. But someone with me who's a networker would say, dude, like, she's got an apartment. I was with you this morning. This girl needs an apartment. And I'd just be like, oh, <laughs> let's put them together. He's like, duh. You know, like, like, but there are people who are, like, born to network. And so they've got an applicable skill. Other people, I'm, I'm a public speaker. That's my applicable skill. I'm also a musician. Applicable skill. Um, some people are excellent writers. Some people are excellent at mathematics and logistics. Some people are excellent at at um, at uh, problem solving. So all of us have these special skills. Now, of course, a lot of us are still in those beliefs about ourselves, so we refuse to admit those skills. So you'd have to defer to your best friends and parents to figure out what they always say about you, because some of us have all that like rotten rotten self-loathing inside that we refuse to admit our skills. And then the fourth is just simply to, to give it a one-word statement, one or two-word statement. Once you apply step three to two, meaning you apply your special skill to that thing that's always bothered you about this world, you apply it, and then you give it a term, a f- not even three words, just one word or two words. It has to be very short and pithy of what you're here to do. And then that thing you're here to do will always be uh, put against self-image because contribution and self-image are always in conflict because you can't have your self-image and your contribution. you got to choose. Okay, You have to choose between self-image and contribution. You'll notice that in my classes, more than probably most people you've ever heard speak, I'm much more open about myself and about my life. You notice I'm like totally, like I don't hide it anything, that's not because I'm ADHD. It's because I chose my contribution over my self-image. So I'm not really thinking much about my self-image. And therefore, over years of teaching, I've slowly released all my inhibitions to be concerned about anything you would ever think of me, nor anyone in my career. I'm pretty public, you know, pretty known out there right now. You'd think I'd be much more, hold my cards closer to my chest be much more poker-faced about what I'm going through. But because years ago, I made a decision when I realized that your contribution and your self-image are in an absolute conflict, and if you die with just a self-image, so your life was a waste, and if you die with a contribution, then your life was worthwhile. So you all have to make a choice. Is your life about your contribution, or is it about your self-image? I hate to speak strong like that, but you got to make that decision. What's your life about? you got to choose, and you can't have both. But I will let you know one good thing, though. 
one positive thing that is if you do choose to let go of self-image and to actually champion some cause, some contribution, guess how everyone's going to know you? They're going to know you for your contribution. So, yes, whatever your original self-image was will be dead, but your contribution will be the way people know you. I'm known by my contribution. But, but let me give you, just since we spoke about all this, those four steps, those are the four steps. Yeah, you got them, Mushy? But the, but the one thing I'll tell you all is whatever you do, in order that you don't crash and burn, is never identify with your contribution. Yes, my contribution, and I haven't told you what mine is, but I think a lot of you have a sense. My contribution is my contribution. I never, ever identify with it. On the airplane, there was a point where I was carrying people's trays to the galley. There was a point where I was helping people with their carry-ons. There was a point last week when I was going underneath chairs and picking up snot, sorry, cleaning up tissues. And like a janitor under a chair, under chairs where 52 men had just cried their eyes out. And I didn't, I mean, I asked them to clean up, but they were so blown away that they were like, they couldn't handle the detail work. And so as soon as they left, I got down on my hands and knees and did it. Because there's, there's, I, I really let go of my self-image for my contribution. And so I'm just warning you that if you find your contribution, and you will, if you're willing to do what I just said, and I, and if you join me next week, I promise you, you'll have an absolute, you, you will have murdered your ego. By the end of the, by the sixth day of the seminar, you will have murdered your ego. The truth is you'll have murdered it by the third day, but by the sixth day, it's like, you're already, you know, lighting your side candles. So the, the, um, but I'm warning you, do not get identified with it because then you become one of these megalomaniac, you know, self-important stars championing your cause. And no one's got time for that. All you're doing is poisoning your contribution. And you've re-egoed yourself. And you'll see, it becomes life becomes even more difficult than when you were dealing with the little problems. Now all of a sudden you're maintaining this massive self-image. And so never identify with your contribution. Um, we're almost done. Uh, using Torah for conflict resolution is... Uh, is um, is basically, I'm just going to give one hint, take it to a higher source. Meaning if you're in a conflict with someone or you know people in a conflict, there are certain rabbis who are amazing at conflict resolution. They just bring, and now they're so good at it that the conflicting parties tend to be in love and like, you know, maybe we shouldn't get divorced after all. But the, um, meaning they'll, they'll, they'll actually love each other at the end of the discussion. Meaning two warring factions will suddenly get connected by taking it to that higher person. So regarding conflict resolution, there's nothing like rabbis for that. However, not every rabbi is good at conflict resolution. So, And, and if you look at my uh, class called Finding a Rav, you'll see that part of it is just they've mastered impartiality. When you master impartiality, you can actually do amazing conflict resolution. Um, last is, uh, is what's wrong with the Jewish world today. Um, what's wrong with the Torah community today? Um, mm, mm, mm. Um, 
So I'm just going to go very systemic, like the, what is the real issue and the very base, base, base of the system is that, um, is that when you have a, when you, it's okay to move and sh- kind of react. Like when you're driving and you see a pothole, you're supposed to react. But in the end, get back to re- driving. Like you can't spend your whole life, I mean, unless you live in Brooklyn, you can't spend your whole life avoiding potholes. Because if you actually follow digitally the path of a car that's always avoiding potholes, you'd say like, I mean, if you just looked at it, GPS tracked with a line on a map, you'd look at the guy who got to your, to your house and you'd say like, like, yeah, we were drunk. So what's happened is um, 200 years ago when the Jewish society, um, which was when the Jewish society to, became what's called today the Haredim, when they took that move called Haredi, it was a reaction to the Haskalah movement. And what happened was, built into the Haredi movement is reaction. What's the Haskalah movement? Haskalah. Haskalah movement was the Enlightenment when Jews started taking off from Judaism. So they, what they did was they reacted to the Haskalah. But because the whole movement was built off of an actual reaction, so that became part of the, part of the way of life, where we're just reacting, and we react, and we react, and react, and react. Now the problem is, after a while, you look in the mirror, and all you are is just one big reaction, and you lost all the actual, we lose the core values, because we're so busy moving and reacting, and reacting, and reacting, we lose the... We lose our core values. We become just reactionary people. And the core of Judaism is a, has unfortunately taken a tremendous hit from the reactionary mo- movement called the Haredi movement. It's extremely reactionary. And um, unfortunately, our deepest values have been sacrificed for in the, in the name of things that are called Judaism but are actually reactions. Um, so, and and I, I never bring up problems without solutions. So the solution is getting back to basics. We've got to get back to basics. Asia Torres, and the part of that question was, why are so many people at Aish who are raised observant? Raise your hands if you're raised observant. Okay, you'll see it's always about 90% of the class, 9 out of 10 people here are raised observant. Um, it's because our curriculum... Our curriculum is getting back to the basics. Like, what is the foundation of why we do what we do? And if we can just stay true with those foundations, Judaism goes back to being a blast. And when we, and we turn those reactions more into the bathwater, sometimes necessary. Bathwater is necessary. And even dirty bathwater, you can water your plants with it. Not your vegetables, I think, but certainly your, other vegetable, other plants. You can water it with dirty bathwater. There's use for the, all those reactions, all the decrees, and all the ways we do things today. There's use for those, but uh, but that is not the core of Judaism. The core of Judaism are the foundational uh, uh, principles that Asha Torah was created originally to teach secular people. But in the end, we see that they're on their iPhones, and but we have noticed that. People, before they discard all of their Jewish life, they kind of, some people are thinking, before I do that, maybe I should just check in if there's maybe a couple important things I don't want to lose. And hopefully they show up at Aish or watch us online and eventually take commitments to stay with Judaism, but a core value Judaism as opposed to a reactionary Judaism. Thank you very much. Shalom, everyone. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.